The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 9 and some private conversation between Jesus and his disciples. He'd been trying to get away alone with them for some while in the previous passage, looked at this last week, following the preaching trip, the, the journey that opened chapter 9. Jesus had called them aside with him privately and headed off to a retreat near the town of Bethsaida, but the crowd had tracked him down and there was no rest. People came and came and came, and Jesus welcomed them kindly and graciously. This is what Jesus is like. He has power to meet all the needs of his people. We see that as he, as he feeds them from practically nothing. We've seen it in countless examples before. And he has power to meet all of the needs of his people, and he is welcoming of people, welcoming them to himself, even if at the moment he has another agenda an adventure every week. <laughs> that is bright. <laughs> He's willing to use his power. He's willing to use his power. He invites people to himself and says, I will. These people, these disciples, they can't, but I will. I will meet needs, and I'm going to use people. I'm going to use these disciples. That's part of the lesson he's teaching us last week as we looked at this. Not only that he has power, that he is willing, but that he's going to use us, powerless. He's going to use us and work through us to, to meet the needs of people. Looked at that last week where there was no rest for Jesus, but he's still after that rest. He's still pursuing it, and this week that's what he comes to. He seeks it out, and in our passage today, he's alone with his disciples and beginning in verse 18, we're going to see him have a private conversation with them. He's going to open up his identity with them and then work about clarifying what that actually means. He's going to talk about his identity, and they're going to understand that, but then he's going to work at understanding that because they don't understand that. So we're going to see a question asked and answered this morning that Luke has been wanting us throughout this book to be asking and working towards answering ourselves. Who is Jesus? That's what we're going to look at this morning and try to understand it. So I'm working on who is Jesus and how so, if you want to look at that this morning, from verses 18 through 22. Let me read them. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, or one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Luke 9. I'm going to make two observations from the passage. First, regarding the identity of Jesus. Here it is. 
more than just a good teacher. Jesus is the Christ we need. More than just a good teacher. Jesus is the Christ we need. It's a simple point that arises from verses 18 to 20. Jesus praying by himself. There's there's no crowd there, and he's not in like a group prayer time with the disciples. He's praying. And as a brief aside, we should notice, we are often told that Jesus is praying, often before big turning points, before large statements. And and why is that put in there? It's, It's often there. It's never the main point, often just kind of stated off to the side. But it's in there, I think, to constantly be reminding us that Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry runs along the tracks of prayer. We see something in Jesus there that's never really the main point, but it's constant. His life runs along the tracks of prayer. Ours should too. So he's praying, and he finishes, and then he asks the 12 a question, who do the crowds say that I am? And they've been traveling around, they've heard, so they offer up the various answers, the same ones, in fact, that Herod had heard back in verse 7. And they're all positive answers. People are seeing, and they're seeing things happen. They're asking, who is this? And they come up with all kinds of good options. Now, they're not the negative options that the Pharisees come up with, that he's evil or demon-possessed. These are positive. He's John the Baptist, or maybe he's Elijah or some other Old Testament prophet. These are big names, respected people. The crowds, by and large, loved John the Baptist, and they knew that he spoke with power. They knew that he brought the word of God. They knew that he was attempting to propagate righteousness and justice, and he was talking about the kingdom of Messiah. They loved him. Maybe he's John. And Elijah, of course, a significant figure in the Old Testament, he's the the precursor of the coming Messiah, the coming kingdom of God. Maybe this is who he is or some other Old Testament prophet. They're all very positive answers. They're not prejudiced. They're not against Jesus. They're complimenting him. They're just wrong. Verse 20, Jesus redirects, and what about you all? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers for the group, the Christ of God. The correct answer. We know so because we've been reading along the, through the whole book. We have an advantage over the disciples in that we read the beginning. We, we, we saw the announcement of the birth of Jesus. We saw the prophetic song sung at the beginning of the book. We know that he is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. We use Hebrew and Greek words. Christ and Messiah, same thing. We know that's who he is. We've been reading along. But they've had to put it together as they've watched, not just like the crowds, a little bit here, a little bit there. They've had a front row seat to watch all of it and to even hear some inside explanation. They've they've heard all of it, and they're piecing together, this one must be the Christ. The Christ of God, the Messiah. And that's supposed to be our conclusion too. Which, admittedly, might sound a little stale to us today because, frankly, that's what most of us call him. Even people who aren't Christians call him Christ or Jesus Christ as if it's first and last name rather than name and title. So it seems like hardly a relevant point to say that Jesus Christ is the Christ. Of course he is. That's his name, right? Right? No, not quite, but that's what it seems like. So it doesn't really grip us that that Jesus is the Christ of God seems like maybe a question somebody else is asking at some time in the past where you've got, maybe in your cultural background, if if you're Jewish, you've got all these prophetic puzzle pieces laid out on the table and you're trying to put it all together, but 
Either for us today, the puzzle's already put together, or we weren't trying to put it together in the first place. So what's the point? Does this matter for us? Yes. This is extremely important for us, not because of the words Christ, Messiah, kingdom, or because of the the need to put together the puzzle piece, but because if you take away all those words, what it's about is life. This is exactly what you are about every single day, though you may never have thought of it as, I'm about the Messiah or I'm looking for Christ. We don't use those words, but we are about this topic. Everybody on the planet is today. To say that Jesus is the Christ of God is to say that Jesus is the special anointed, both in the sense of specially chosen by God and in the sense of specially bestowed with power and authority to do what he chose him to do. So he's chosen by God to do something and then given power and authority to get it done. In that sense, both those senses, he is the special anointed empowered, chosen ruler, the king, promised by God long ago. We read about it in the Bible. Promised to David, King David long ago. Promised to all of his people in progressive texts throughout the Old Testament. Promised and promised and promised. He's the king who is going to bring in, kings bring kingdoms. He brings in, we might say today, and administration. We're talking about electing a president, and there's going to be a new upcoming administration, whoever it is. He's going to bring in, a president brings an administration, a king brings a kingdom. The way things are and the way things are done, the way life is. This king is going to bring a kingdom, a wonderful kingdom, in which The people of God would dwell, in which they would dwell, and in which they would enjoy. They're going to dwell in and with the king and enjoy the king and enjoy each other in remarkable ways. The kingdom. It's always what the Old Testament is looking forward to. If you read your Old Testament and you find them talking about passages talking about the future, the time of great promise or great blessing or great prosperity or whatever, they're looking forward to, you can put over that, kingdom of Messiah, kingdom of Christ. Always looked forward to, it's always incredibly positive. It's a place where the Lord is worshipped purely and wholeheartedly and joyfully in which people live in unity and in peace and in prosperity and wholeness and fullness. You know some of the images if you read the Old Testament. It's where the lion lies down with the lamb. Peace. Counterintuitive peace. It's the place where the streets are full of old men and old women because nobody dies, nobody has disease. And where children, boys and girls, play. There are no longer any car wrecks. There are no longer any amber alerts. They run freely in the streets and play. 
And you're, when you're in those streets, hanging out with those people, having delighted times of, of play, you never off in the distance hear a siren running to clean up someone's sorrow. And none of those children are ever going to grow up and train for war anymore because there isn't such a thing. And they're never afraid of any terror striking. And none of the parents there are worried about losing their job or where they're going to get money for the table next week. It's gone. The newspapers don't have anything that has any hint of tragedy or sorrow or worry or pain or fear. There's no political corruption. There's no shenanigans. It's wonderful. And if you take out all that isn't and put in all that is, it is a place of righteousness and justice between God and between people. And every person, no matter what their native tongue or tribe or nation, race, there's no racial tension, there's no ethnic or national, there's no gender tensions. Everybody who is a citizen of that kingdom dwells in unity and in peace and knows love beyond love beyond love beyond love joy beyond joy beyond joy beyond joy because they are gathered together with hearts and minds and eyes oriented towards the king and from him his values drive through us out between all of us and it is glorious and it's what every single person on the planet is chasing sometimes negatively but not always negatively Sometimes positively. It's what, it's what we're after. It's what we're after. And it all comes about, it all comes about because everybody in that place perfectly knows, perfectly embraces, and perfectly lives out God's law. His law which is good and right. It's the expression of who he is, of his character. So you can think the Ten Commandments if you want. It can get larger than that, but it's, it's the expression of who he is, and everybody in that kingdom knows it, embraces it, and perfectly lives it out, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Love runs through this place. The prophets elaborated on it and called the people to it. And if you read the prophets, confronted the people for breaking it. This law. If I pause right there, something that should rise up in you and say, oh, thank goodness. I'm going to try to make a little connection. That's why it's so good that he's not just a prophet. The prophets, even the greatest prophets, John the Baptist being the final and greatest one, the prophets all say, look at the kingdom that you long for. And here's how you get it. But you don't. There's where the sternness of the prophets comes in, right? John the Baptist. The axe is laid at the root. Here's the sternness. Here's the kingdom and what you long for, what you need, what your heart was made for. As you hear it described, it goes, yes! And here's how you get it. And you don't. 
if he was just a prophet, if he, if he did that like really, really, really well, better than anybody else, we'd be doomed. If he was just an awesome teacher, as some people say he is, and he could explain the word of God and the law of God and all of the intricacies of the character of God and lay it out in front of us in, in brilliant technicolor and, and in such, with such inspiring illustrations and clarity of language and eloquence, and we saw it and got it, we'd be doomed. Because we don't and can't keep it. The greatest teacher that ever was ultimately just binds us over to ourselves and to destruction. He is a great prophet and a great teacher. I hope not. I hope that's not all that he is. To tell us the law only and to describe for us the kingdom only and to hold it out in front of us would be to bring us to water and then stop us from drinking it and leave us parched and dry. Maybe to offer up some dehydrated food and say, here, eat. And like sand, we might try to choke it down, but we can't actually get to the water if all he is is a prophet. He looked like one because he taught. Yeah. He performed miracles like some of the prophets did. But with People with eyes to see saw that, oh, he is far, far, far more than that. He does not just give us more guidance and more instruction. He is actually the king, the ruler who makes it so. Not the teacher that says what should be. There is a great difference there that should call out from us thanksgiving and praise that God has done in, in sending Jesus, the Christ of God, God has done more than send one who said, here's what should be, here's what might be, and here's how. He has said, no, I will make it so. He's a king with great power, willing to make the kingdom come, willing to make the will of God be done, willing to make his name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. That is good, good, good news for us. For every person, every single one of us, and every single person out there who inside of themselves has longed for the kingdom, even if you never called it that, has longed for that life. This is what we are constantly after, and we chase it down through, through initiatives and plans and self-discipline and trying to elect this person to bring in this kind of governmental administration and I pursue that job and this hobby and all the while I'm trying to secure for myself kingdom life. As I said, half those things aren't bad. Half those things are absolutely necessary. But we look to them for life and we miss. We miss. We miss. We miss even if, carefully here, we miss even if we look to life, we look to find life in following biblical principles. Think about this one. This might not appear obvious right away. You, prob you, pro you hear me say, I, I think you probably hear me say, don't look for life in your hobbies, and you say, well, sure, okay, okay. 
I'm also saying don't look for life in how to improve your Christian marriage. Should you think about how to improve your Christian marriage? Uh-huh. Sure. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. But if you were to find out from some good prophet or some good teacher exactly how to improve your, your Christian marriage, and maybe on top of that, how to raise good Christian kids, and on top of that, how to be a good Christian in the workplace, and, and maybe on top of that, how to spend your money wisely, you still wouldn't have life. All you'd find is what you should do and what could produce it if you did it, but you don't. You need the king to not just teach you how, but to make it so. To bring in the kingdom to you. And cause for rejoicing. Cause for rejoicing. That's what God has done in sending his Christ. I'll go one step beyond saying it. I will do it. This should draw all of our attention, all of our attention onto Jesus. It should turn our hearts in hope to seeking him to rejoicing in him, to resting in him. He is, when we sing songs like, like, what a savior. Oh, don't let that just be a phrase. What a savior. Don't let it be a question. What a savior. Make it a, a, a statement of rejoicing. What a savior. Because this kingdom and this, this life, this thing that I was made for, that I resonate with, that I want, he has made so and provided for me. And brought me into what? A savior. Not just a teacher or a prophet or a guide or a counselor. He is all of that but more. He is a shepherd who leads the sheep. Foolish as we are, blind as we are. Who takes the sheep to water and makes them to drink. Makes them to drink. He is a sheep. He is a shepherd who looks at his sheep and sees them in heart, in in condition somehow wayward and, and broken and makes it fixed, heals it, changes it. He is the one who by his power leads people into kingdom life that we long for and can't get. We needed such a king and God sent him. So in hope and in joy, this should draw our attention to him and cause us to worship him and to realize something has actually happened for you, Christian. And if you're not a Christian, something could happen for you. Not just more about what you should do, but a real change. God has acted to bring you into and to bring to you life. You have been joined to life. And it's not going away. Now, I, I know, I'm going to come to talk about this a little bit here in the next point. I know that, that from some particular place where you stand on any particular day or moment, it certainly doesn't look like life. It looks like being given over to death. Yeah. Being given over to death is the way to life. He has sent the Christ, He has brought the administration. It is set up. Its power is running through the world and even through you. 
life. And that is really good news. That you should hear, that you should rejoice in, that you should rest in. It's not going to be taken from you. This Jesus is the Christ of God. Don't tell anybody. That seem odd to you? Do you feel like I should tell somebody about that? Well, on the one hand, I want to say, yes, you should. But on the other hand, I want to say, that's exactly what Jesus says. You are the Christ of God. Uh Uh-huh, don't tell anybody. That's confusing. That's the second point. Jesus' reign comes after and indeed because of his suffering and utter rejection. Jesus' reign comes after and indeed because of his suffering and utter rejection. Peter gives the right answer to the question, you are the Christ of of God, and Jesus responds immediately and very firmly. Look at the emphasis there in verse 21. He strictly charged and commanded them. He's very intent that they not tell anybody this. Don't say, and I mean don't say, strictly charged and commanded them. You could hear, what, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? We've been waiting for God to send the Messiah literally for a thousand years. For a thousand years. And I've been watching, Peter might say, we've been watching, we've been traveling around talking about the kingdom with you, and then you told us to talk about the kingdom, how it was coming, how it was near, and then we're watching all this work, and then we, we get it, And people are obviously confused by everything, but we get it, and now you tell us not to clear things up and celebrate. I don't get it. But Jesus is very intent on that. We've seen this before, where he silenced demons who knew, don't talk about it. He silenced the parents of the girl he raised from the dead, don't talk about it. Here, strictly commands and charges, don't talk about it. Why not? Because they don't really get it. Nobody gets it. Nobody really understands what the kingdom reign will be like, and especially no one understands how Jesus will establish his kingdom reign. Nobody sees, nobody sees him inaugurating the kingdom from a cross. And nobody sees him being raised up onto the throne out of a grave. They, they, got, they got the right answer, formally speaking, you are the Christ of God, but they don't really understand what that answer means. And so anything they say about Jesus being the Messiah, explicitly so, will be misleading because it doesn't include what Jesus says next. He charged them to tell us to no one, saying, the Son of Man must. He uses a, a less provocative title there. He doesn't call himself the Christ, doesn't even call himself the Son of God, but calls himself the Son of Man, emphasizing his humanity and his identification with human beings, with people. The Son of Man must, which is a fascinating and wonderful word. It's a little bitty word. Literally, it'd probably be good to translate it, 
it is necessary. It is not just. It will be. Jesus is not just making a prediction about the future. He's talking about plan. Deliberate, required plan. It has to be like the following. It's necessary. According to God and his plan, I will because I must. I will suffer many things. It is necessary. I will be rejected, not celebrated and received, rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, that is the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the people. It is necessary that I be killed. And it is necessary that on the third day I be raised. This is what must be. And for the first time, Jesus explicitly, this is the first time he explicitly kind of opens up before them the alarming trajectory of his life. And on so many levels, this made zero sense to them. The rest of the Gospel of Luke reveals that essentially they just chalked it up as crazy talk because they didn't believe it. He has to say this a bunch of times. They, they heard it and said, mm, whatever. That's obviously not right. Because they're still thinking, really, they're thinking like John the Baptist. You recall John the Baptist from prison back in, in chapter 7? He sent messengers to ask, are you the one who was to come? Because he's still thinking, they're still thinking, we're still thinking that kingdom means glory. If the kingdom comes, glory comes. Come on, you're the king of God and the kingdom of God. Righteousness and justice. If the king comes, glory comes. And let me tell you what, the enemies get cast on, not Messiah. Evil gets destroyed, not Messiah. That's what is. I don't know what you're talking about, but that's not right. And foretold right in the heels of all this power laid out. I mean, they've seen him cast out demons and, and, and heal and raise the dead. Right on the end of that, it, it, it further makes no sense, no sense, no sense at all. But clearly it's going to happen voluntarily. He has that kind of power and even the text emphasizes the passive nature of Jesus. He's going to receive suffering. He's going to receive rejection and receive murder. He is indeed the king, the lion if you will. And he is going to voluntarily become the meek lamb silent as he is afflicted, rejected, and led to slaughter. It is remarkable and it is necessary. Why? Why couldn't he just go right to glory? That's what we want. I'll come back to this in a little bit, but that is what we want. We always would rather skip the vegetables and eat dessert. I do that sometimes myself. We would rather have glory immediately. We would rather have the kingdom that I described now. All the way. 
And as you're listening to the siren off in the distance, you say, that's wrong. I don't want that. No, I want, I want that kingdom that you were talking about. I want that kingdom now. We always do. It is natural to think like this. So why is it necessary that it not be that way? Why must this king walk a path of hardship and suffering and indignity and pain? Why must he embrace humiliation and opposition and angry rejection and spitting and beating and scorning and cursing of all manner? Why must he be killed? It's the king. Why? Why is the king of glory such a voluntary man of sorrows? You know these terms. He is the king of glory, and he's the man of sorrows. He is in the form of God and humbles himself to be a servant. Why must that be? Because of the will of God to give this king a kingdom that includes people like you. Which is not an an indictment. It might fall on your ears as an indictment. Think about that, though. Because of the will of God to give this king a kingdom that includes people like you. Because the kingdom I described, you got no business being in and can never enter no matter how well anybody explains what it's like and how to get there. You'll never get there. But God decided to make a kingdom that includes people like you and me, that includes sinners, rebels, enemies who cannot clean up their act, who can never hear the law of God and willingly, happily, wholly embrace it, but instead are bound over to sin. And this king and his kingdom must be about righteousness and justice. It must be about love and joy and peace. It must be pure and holy, and we're not. But he wants that. So it must be that the Son will come and die for you. God. Somebody described him once as the hound of heaven who is chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing you till he catches you. Chasing you down to willingly wield his power to get you into the kingdom of glory. He catches you like hounds chasing prey. He catches you and kills himself. That doesn't make any sense. I know, that's why you can't talk about that yet. Because you don't get it. I'm going to do it first, then you'll get it. This Jesus is so wonderful. A king of glory who in grace and willingly embraces a plan that casts him down, puts him beneath people, beneath hateful people, beneath stupid people, beneath murderous people. So as to save murderous, stupid, hateful people like me and like you. 
That makes no sense. The world either wants something that is very much about power and glory or something that's very intriguing and wise and winsome, but God said, I'm going to make foolish the wise, I'm going to humble the powerful, and I'm going to come myself, the king of glory, and go to a cross to die, rejected, to save and make a kingdom. That's how I'm going to break the power of sin and pay the penalty of sin and one day remove the very presence of sin from my kingdom. And I'm going to do it in a way that keeps people in it. You. This is your story. This is an awesome, awesome story and it's your story not your story. It can be your story. Trust Christ. According to the plan of God, it is necessary that he be rejected by men. Yeah, but in fact rejected by God himself. As God himself turns his face away from the Son and hangs on him the curse to us. And as one artist says, He wrote a check to save us, and the resurrection says the check cleared. I love that phrase. The resurrection, we all cheered because the check cleared. That's how he puts it. Christ is raised from the dead. Must be so because he's God and the grave can't hold him. This that has come, this kingdom that has come, it has already come, and it is God at work in the king to make it so for you. And he makes it so in such a counterintuitive, upside-down, paradoxical way that the king would be humbled, that that the lowly, murderous enemies would be exalted. The kingdom is here in, in part. Not fully, indeed, not fully. And that creates a bit of a dilemma for us. Because even as I talk about this, we do still really, 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 really want the glory. We don't do well with suffering and rejection. We don't do well with following Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, the scum of the earth. That doesn't sit well on our ears. But that's what Paul calls himself right before saying, Follow me. Why do you follow me? Because I'm following him. Rejected and despised. Rejected and despised. Rejected and despised. That's hard for us. We would do well if this was all past tense and by now, a couple thousand years later, the glory had come, but it has not. And Jesus is still on the path of holding out his hands as a slain lamb. He does indeed reign from heaven, but not yet fully, not like he will. This is laid, this is, this is a paradox laid right at the foundation of this Christian faith of ours. That we serve a king who is full of glory and might, and so we should be a people who have incredibly high Christ esteem. Not self-esteem. Christ esteem. 
You serve the king. Who can stand against you? Martin Luther talked about that and said, well, everybody, but nobody. He made that, he made that point. Martin Luther, in the middle of his deal, who can stand against me? Well, everybody that I can think of, but nobody who matters. You serve the king. So you should be of incredibly high Christ esteem, and therefore that should breed in you great confidence. And you serve the king who is lowly, so it should breed in you great confidence and great humility and meekness and lowliness. Because he makes his appeal to the world now from, from a position of power meekly. In the same way, we with his power appeal meekly and humbly, laying down our lives just like him. Laying down our lives before people, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us. This is, this is difficult. Who is worthy of such a task? No one who forgets Christ. You can't do it. You can't do it. But if you see in your eyes, in your mind's eye, if you'll see there the king, enthroned and reigning, and at the same time with pierced hands appealing, if you, if you hold that in front of you, God will use that to remind you and to give you power to say, I serve the king. I serve the king. And I serve you for your sake in the kingdom. Come to more of that next week, I think, as we consider Jesus' call to take up our cross and follow him. But this morning we look at this is the fact that the kingdom has come and Christ has been enthroned via the cross and suffering. It has happened to you. It is not proscribed to you what you should do. It has happened to you, you who believe. It can happen to you if you will believe. And there is a call in that towards great confidence in Christ and, and great confidence then in where you sit in the world and a great humility as you sit beneath the world. Christ has been raised rest. You'd be crucified with him, raised with him, that's happened spiritually. Day by day by day you're going to be crucified with him. And you'll be raised with him. Rest. Let me pray. Father, would you give us this hope to give your people this hope that you have made the kingdom to come. And would you give us the hope that you are making it to come? The resurrection is still before us. The kingdom in all its fullness is still before us. And in the meantime, we follow you on the way of the cross. Thank you for walking that path for us. Thank you for saving us. You're good. You're good. Would you please build a people, would you build individual people, and would you build a people, a church here, that sees you as high and exalted 
and meek and humble at the same time both. And then has grace to walk in that tension ourselves always. Build a people like that, please, Lord. In Christ's name and thankful for him, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.